return once more to our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. We're still working in the seventh chapter, and though we looked at a portion of this text last week from an expositional viewpoint, I promised at that time that we would look at it again from a slightly different angle this evening, God willing. And so, I'll ask you to turn to chapter 7 of Romans, reading again beginning at verse 14. I'll ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do that I practice." Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin, the inerrant Word of God for God's people. Please be seated. Let's pray. Again, our Father, we beseech You that You would help us tonight as we examine this teaching of Your Apostle in which he sets forth the very real and present conflict that we all experience in our lives and in our spiritual pilgrimage. We pray tonight that You would grant understanding and comfort to us through Your Word. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, God willing, tonight will not be the last of our messages with respect to chapter 7. It is my hope and plan to visit it again next week, because there were elements of the text that I did not get to deal with in an expositional manner a week ago, and also in the interim I made a promise to you that this week, instead of looking at the text verse by verse, as is my custom, that I was going to take a little break from that pattern and examine this portion of the text from a theological and even somewhat philosophical perspective, uh, looking specifically but not exclusively to the work of Jonathan Edwards in his classic treatment of the question of the operation of the human will in Edwards' great work on the freedom of the will. Now, before I look at that, I want to say that we are always susceptible as Christians to having ideas creep into our thinking that are quite contrary to the truth of God, but they kind of slip in unnoticed. We don't plan to embrace pagan notions that are incompatible with the truth of God, 
but it's been said if a lie is repeated often enough, people begin to believe it. And so much of this information comes our way and sneaks into the crevices of our brain, then we are not even aware of it, particularly ideas that bombard our minds from childhood where we are taught that there are certain truths that are so self-evident and so well attested to by contemporary science that to question them is to uh, risk the charge of being insane. Now, like I say, there are many such ideas that sneak into our heads that are utterly incompatible with the Christian faith. But the two I think that are most frequent are, first of all, a view of nature that even though now it's somewhat passe in contemporary paradigms of natural science, nevertheless is still pervasive at the common level of what we call a mechanistic view of the universe. That is, that the universe works something like a machine, and that machine functions according to fixed inherent laws within nature. You've been told from the time you were, were infants that the universe operates according to the laws of nature, and the laws of nature are presented to us as if they were immutable, fixed, inherent powers that are autonomous. That is, they operate by their own steam and are accountable to nothing outside of or above and beyond nature itself. Now, obviously, that is on a collision course with everything that the Scriptures teach us about the nature of God. The nature of God tells us that this world is His creation and that God rules over this world not as an absentee landlord nor as a cosmic uh, spectator, but through His providence He governs the motion of every atom and every subatomic particle in the universe. Gravity cannot function without, for a second apart from His providential rule and permission. And from a biblical perspective, what we call the laws of nature are merely descriptive terms for how God usually, normally, or ordinarily governs His creation by His providence. But we've seen in our day a declaration of independence from the sovereign providence of God, and the assumption now becomes that the universe operates by its own steam. You know that song that we sang as our opening hymn this evening? One of my all-time favorite hymns. How can it not be? I, while we were singing it, my mind drifted back a few years to the first few months after the wall came down and the collapse of the Soviet uh, empire, where I spent several weeks lecturing and preaching in Eastern Europe, in the Czech Republic, in Hungary, and then in Romania. And of course, the whole time I was there lecturing, I had to have a battery of translators to translate my teaching into the native language of the people, and in turn, when they would raise questions to me, they would have to be translated for my benefit. And when I preached in the churches on Sunday morning, every phrase that I uttered, I had to pause and wait for the translator to communicate uh, my sermon in the native language of the people there in the congregation. And when we sang the hymns in these foreign languages, I didn't know a single word of the hymns but I knew the tune of every hymn that we sang at that time. And that's one of the things that troubles my spirit with the revolution 
in worship in our day as we've seen an almost wholesale rejection of the great hymns of the church. Hymns that have been sung in every land in Christendom and in every generation for centuries. We suddenly cut ourselves off from the communion of saints, the whole history of the church. And so that there are Christians today who aren't even aware of the, that hymn that we sang tonight, which is called the Old Hundredth, come, coming from Psalm 100. But you notice that in the second verse of that hymn that we sang, it reads like this, the Lord ye know is God indeed. That's not the way we talk today, is it? But it's great the way it comes across in this hymn. Without our aid, He did us make. What an idea that so captures the biblical perspective of the relationship of God to His creation. Without our aid, He did us make. You know, we think in this day and age that God can't do anything without our assistance or without our consent, but He is the Lord. There is none like Him, and He made us without any help or assistance from us. We are His folk. He doth us feed. See, there it is, the sovereign providence of God. We are His sheep. He feeds us, and He takes us to belong to Him. This, this hymn, like so many of the great hymns, is rich in setting forth a Christian understanding of life, a Christian understanding of nature. But that's not the focal point this evening. I said there are many intrusions into our thought from pagan sources that we're not aware of. I would say that idea of a, an independent, self-ruling, autonomous universe is the second most pervasive pagan idea that creeps into our thinking. I would say that overwhelmingly the most widespread pagan idea that penetrates our thinking and that many times we never give it a second thought is the humanistic, secular, and pagan view of the human will. Which view of the human will is about as far removed from the biblical view as it can be. And so deeply entrenched is this pagan notion of the will that when we preach of the sovereignty of God in His ministry of redemption, in His work of sovereign election, and the disposition of His saving grace through the good pleasure of His will, people immediately protest, often vociferously, sometimes with great anger and passion, that this violates the free will of man. And when we begin to probe what is meant by the free will of man, what is usually expounded is this widespread and pagan understanding of the will. Now, one thing we agree with, with the pagan here, with the humanist, with the secularist, is that we as human beings are volitional creatures. And a volitional creature is a creature that has the capacity of making choices, of exercising their will. We are voluntary creatures, and we distinguish between voluntary actions and involuntary actions. Maybe certain Hindu mystics or people like Mahatma Gandhi could stop his heart from beating at will, but the vast majority of human beings have their hearts beating involuntarily. I don't have to make a decision every morning when I get up and say to my heart, please start 
beating. It goes in an involuntary manner. But if I decide to shave when I get out of bed in the morning or not shave, that's not something that happens in an involuntary manner. To shave, I must make the decision. I must make the choice to exercise my will to pick up the razor and trim my beard, as it were. We understand the difference between voluntary actions and involuntary actions. So then what is the difference between the pagan view of the will and the biblical view of the will? Briefly, the pagan, humanistic, secular view of the will is that the will is so free that every choice that it has before it, it can respond to out of what is called philosophically indifference. That is, to be truly free in the making of decisions and the making of choices, that freedom must be absolute insofar is that there is nothing that influences or compels you to choose to the left or to the right. The will to be free must have no preconceived bias, no previous inclination, no prior disposition in one direction or the other. And that's what is meant by a will of indifference, that the will approaches every life situation, every option with the true freedom to go this way or that way. It's going too fast. You understand what I'm saying here by the will of indifference. When John Calvin was engaged in a dispute over free will with uh, his opponent, whose name was Pigius, in the 16th century, part of the dis- debate focused on this question of the nature of the human will. And Calvin made this observation, if you mean by free will that all of us, even in our sinful condition, have the power and the ability to choose what we want, to choose by decision to do what we desire to do, then Calvin said, I completely agree with the idea of free will. If, however, you mean by free will the ability of a human being to choose from indifference, from a will that is not tainted, influenced, or held captive by its propensity for sin, then free will is far too grandiose a term to be applied to human beings. What Calvin was saying is, Yes, we have free will in the sense that we have the ability to choose what we want, but that ability to choose what we want is not only mildly influenced, but is radically conditioned by the human corruption of our hearts out of which flow the choices that we make. That is to say, we make evil choices, not from indifference, but from a prior disposition and inclination to wickedness. As the Bible said, the desires of our hearts, this is prior to regeneration, are only wicked continuously. This was at the heart of the debate between Martin Luther and Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam, that in his diatribe, Erasmus attacked Luther's view of the sovereignty of God and of election, and I am choosing to wrench 
this ginger ale free from its mooring. And fortunately, the laws of inertia were overcome by the gentle providence of God in my behalf. And Luther responded to the diatribe of Erasmus with his, with his classic work, De Servo Arbitrium, on the bondage of the will. Now, when Edwards undertook to deal with this question of the will there in New England in the 18th century, he was defending his position against the rising tide of Arminian theology, which theology in many respects was married to a view of the will as being indifferent. And in his discussion, Edwards began with this question, what is the will? We talk about the will all the time. What is it? And it is not an organ that's three inches to the left side of the liver or the pancreas or the heart. The will describes a faculty or an ability by which human beings are able, as I said, to make choices. We're not robots. We're not inert stones or logs. We are living, breathing people who make choices all the time. But what is that faculty that we call the will? Edwards answered that question, and I think with a profound understanding of this, by saying that what the will is, is simply the mind choosing. An action of the will, a voluntary action, is an action that takes place because in our thinking, our mental approach to something we determine what is desirable, what seems good to us at the moment, and on the basis of that activity of the mind, we then exercise our choice. In fact, if the mind is not involved in our choices, they would have no moral basis to them whatsoever. A mindless choice is really not a moral choice. But in addition to this, Edwards began to probe more deeply into the whole dimension of human choices, and he came to this conclusion that I've mentioned to you on other occasions and in other circumstances, but I'd like to spend a little time to camp out on it. But the fundamental principle of Edwards' analysis was this, that choices do not occur in a vacuum. Choices are not uncaused effects. They don't just pop up, de nova, like Athena out of the head of Zeus. All choices have a cause. And the antecedent cause for every choice that we make is what Edwards called inclination or disposition. And the principle that he set forth was this, that we not only choose according to our desires, but we must choose according to our desires, and that we always choose according to the strongest inclination, the strongest disposition, or strongest desire that we have at the moment of choice. Let me say that again. If you could get a hold of this principle, dear, dear ones, keep it in your thinking, understand it. This can help you avoid a multitude of serious errors of how the Christian faith works that we always choose 
according to the strongest inclination that we have at the moment. If we understand that, we would say, we would understand that never in your life have you ever chosen to do something that you didn't want to do. This is the ugly power of sin. The reason we choose to sin in a given moment is because that's what we want to do. We sin because we want to sin. The devil doesn't make us do it. We can't make that plea on the judgment day. Every sin that we commit proceeds from our own internal desire. Now, let's look at it again. I'm saying to you, and I'll challenge you to go home this week, think about it, cogitate on it, take out your pen and paper, and come here next week, if you will, and show me just one. I'm not asking for 30 examples that you can come up with this week. Just find one example of anything you've ever done in your life that was not according to your strongest inclination at the moment. You say, I don't have to go home and think about that. I can tell you right now, if you really want to be candid about it, preacher, I didn't want to be here tonight. (laughs) But I came. Why did you come? Well, because my wife was hounding me all afternoon, and she told me it was my duty to be here. And I thought, it's easier for me to go and sit there for an hour and listen to this preacher than to listen to my wife rebuke me for the rest of the week. So, all things being equal, I didn't want to be here. Ha! Ah, but all things weren't equal, were they? When push came to shove and the moment of decision came, Though you had no basic desire or inclination to be in church tonight, you did have a desire and inclination not to be out of sorts with your wife, and so you'd rather bear the ills of listening to the preacher than disappointing your bride. And so your greatest inclination at the moment was to come to church. You see how it works? And I would like you to find some choice that you've ever made that wasn't exactly like that. I'm, I'm telling you right now, if you work real hard at it this week to come up with some of those choices that were not according to your strongest inclination of at the moment, I can save you lots of time and lots of trouble and lots of investigation by just telling you now you're not going to be able to do it. Because every choice you've ever made even though the choice itself seemed absolutely repugnant to you, you chose it because not choosing it was even more repugnant than choosing it. So that which seemed most pleasing to you at the moment is what dictated your choice. You say, are you saying that our choices are determined? This sounds to me like pure determinism. And as Christians, we're not determinists. We don't believe that we're robots, uh, that we're puppets. You know, I've looked at lots of different views of human beings. I've never thought of human beings as being made of wood or manipulated by strings. I've never thought of myself as a puppet. I've never thought of anybody else as a puppet. Puppets don't make choices. Puppets don't have good desires. Puppets don't have evil desires. They have no inclinations whatsoever. You know why? Because they don't have minds. And without a mind, you don't have a faculty of choosing. No mind, no will. It's as simple as that. But you see, we live constantly, not with decisions that are made between two options. But we live constantly with a multitude of options pressing 
against our lives, vying for our attention, vying for our submission. It would be so much easier if when we decided to have an ice cream cone, there were only two flavors to choose from, vanilla and chocolate. But the ice cream companies outdo each other for 57 flavors. And I'll tell you what, if we had indifferent wills, we would be like the donkey that had a bucket of oats placed to the left and some hay to the right. And he was very hungry. But having an indifferent will with no preference, oats to hay, and the two were equal distant from each other. What happens to our poor donkey? He starves to death because he would have no reason to choose the oats or the hay. That's the way we are. When we order ice cream, we tend to order the flavor that is most appealing to us. Now, how does this work out with what Paul is saying here in terms of Christian experience? The good that I would, that I do not, and that which I would not, the very thing I do. He's describing here this conflict, sometimes between rival goods. That can be the very most difficult decision of all, not just between good and evil, but between two different goods. That can really paralyze us. But Paul is, is thinking in terms of all things being equal. As I mentioned last week, I asked the question, how many of you want to be perfectly obedient as Christians? I'll ask it again. How many of you would like to be perfectly obedient? Isn't that something that you desire? That's an inclination that you have in your will. Then the next question, I'll say it again. Why aren't you? See, the new man in your heart has this desire now to please God. But there still lives in your members the vestigial remnants of the old man of the flesh who has declared war on the leanings of the Spirit. And there are many times that when the conflict comes, you'd rather follow the old man than the new man. There's another explanation for sin is that in the moment it is more desirable for us to sin than it is to obey Christ. Part of me wants to obey Christ, but not all of me. There are still these inclinations, still these desires that have not been totally put to death, that they come and they bump up against my good intentions. I've made mention, I've made fun of myself. Uh, Twenty years ago, I joined Weight Watchers. I lost 40-some pounds, and I won the blue ribbon. I gained my lifetime membership in Weight Watchers, which means you're going to have to watch your weight for the rest of your life, is what I found out that meant. I've lost, in my lifetime, I believe, about 2,000 pounds. (laughs) That's a ton. We had a baseball announcer in Pittsburgh in the 30s and in the 40s, back in the days when the ticker tapes were there. The games were not being broadcast live, but on the basis of teletype. And this broadcaster had his favorite expressions that we all got to understand what they meant. If a pitcher walked an opposing batter, gave him first base and a base base on balls, free trip to first base, Rosie Rosewell. (laughs) And then the next batter hit into a double play, erasing the error of the base on balls. Rosie Rosewell's expression was, put him on, 
take them all. <laughs> That's how my diet has been for two. Put them on and take them off. Now you get on a diet and you say, all right, enough is enough. I'm going to lose so many pounds, and I really want to do it. And so I enter into a program, discipline, and things begin to go well until somebody puts a piece of cherry pie in front of me. I look at the cherry pie, and I say, I really want to lose weight. If I eat that cherry pie, I'm not going to get very far with my diet. But oh, that cherry pie looks good. One piece of cherry pie isn't going to hurt. You never seen those comic strips with the devil talking in one ear and an angel talking in the other? That's what happens in our lives every single day. We're called to be disciples, and that means people of discipline. We talk about self-discipline. Do you know, dear ones, that self-discipline in the vast majority of cases is nothing more and nothing less than the extended habit of disciplines developed while you were under the authority of somebody else. Somebody forces you into pattern behavior, you build the pattern, and after a while it becomes part of your life. Now, I said I was going to give you some practical suggestions on how to beat this dilemma that Paul is speaking about here. A couple of decades ago in pop psychology, a book was written called Psycho-Cybernetics. Do you remember that? And the metaphor of the book was that the, the human self, the human person, is like a computer. And the GIGO principle was involved. Garbage in, garbage out. But that the idea there was that the people are live their lives on the basis of how they're programmed, which is not altogether true. It's not altogether false, but it's not altogether true either. Remember I mentioned earlier that there's this danger of determinism. But if my choices are caused by the greatest inclination that I have at the moment, my choices are determined. But they're not determined by the stars, they're not determined by the fates, they're determined by me, by myself, what this self is inclined to do, what I desire. And so that kind of determination is what we call self-determination, which is just another word for freedom. The essence of freedom is to be able to determine your own choices. The essence of our fallen condition is that we determine our own sinful choices. But back to the psycho-cybernetics. Here's what the idea that was being played with there can be translated into the spiritual realm. I know that for me to grow spiritually, I need to develop a deeper prayer life. I also know myself that I can make a hundred resolutions that I'm going to become a prayer warrior. And I know that a hundred times out of a hundred, I'm going to fail in that discipline. And knowing my own weaknesses, what can I do about it? When I am on that spike where I have a strong desire at the moment to become more proficient in prayer, I enroll myself in a prayer group. I enroll myself in an environment where all of the factors that surround me will be helping and aiding me to overcome my own lacks disposition towards prayer. Oh, I've determined many, many times to learn the Scriptures, and I've started well. I read the first chapter of Genesis, and then the next day I read the second chapter of Genesis. The next day, well, that day we had to go out, and I missed it that day, and 
I'd make it up the following day, and so the next day I read two chapters, and the next day I gave up. Does that sound familiar? And if you have failed time and time again to master the Scriptures, how much does it cost you to enroll in a Bible study class? Get in a class where the discipline of the group, the commitment that you make in advance, strengthens your resolve to grow in your understanding of the things of God. Make a family resolution that unless you're running a fever, you're in indigestion, in the hospital, you're going to be in church on Sunday morning. You're not going to make the decision every Sunday morning, well, should I go to church today or should I not go to church today? Let me see. What am I inclined to do this day? No. You establish a principle in your family. And you say, in our family, one of the things we do, we don't have to make decisions, we don't have to sweat over it, is that we are in the Lord's house every Sabbath day. That's psycho-cybernetics from a spiritual perspective. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking to us about in terms of our spiritual pilgrimage in terms of our spiritual growth, what he's saying is we have to put to death the old man. We have to feed the new man. And we know that. So that when you're inclined, when you're on a high, spiritual high, say, okay, I'm going to change my diet. I'm going to change my routine. And I'm going to get into a pattern, into a group where there is discipline that will help me put to death the old man and feed the new man. You know, that was the genius of Weight Watchers. It's still the genius of Weight Watchers. I wish they never would have changed their system because I knew the old system. I don't understand the new system. <laughs> but I've tried everything else. But, but, you know, I used to hate to drive every Tuesday to those meetings where there'd be 50 women and two men, and I would have to step on that scale every week, and the scale wouldn't lie. And then they would ask us in front of everybody, well, how did you do this week? I put on a pound. Well, that's okay, but next week we want to see less of you. So you had the group dynamic. I mean, it's a beautiful idea, really. That's why so many people have been helped by that, because if left to yourself, the self-discipline tends to lose its passion and its zeal. Now, if we understand how the will functions and how we're involved in this kind of conflict that the apostle sets forth here in his letter to the church in Rome, there's a way out. You know, when we join the church, we say, I'm going to make diligent use of the means of grace. The means of grace are the instruments that God gives us to help us overcome the weaknesses of the flesh. But understand, you will always choose what you are most inclined to choose at the moment of decision. To make diligent use of the means of grace is really to program yourself with worship, with prayer, with Scripture, so that your desires are actually sanctified. Dear ones, if you knew how much God hated your sin and you had any affection for Him at all, you would never want to displease Him to that degree. 
But again, we get our information from different sources. We read the Scriptures, and the Scriptures sets before us what God delights in. And we read it, and we say, I want my life to be like that. And the rest of the week, we hear voices from every side telling us, it's no big deal. God doesn't really And so we lose sight of what is pleasing to God. And we hear what is pleasing to our friends. We hear what is pleasing to the culture. And you see what happens. Our delight in God begins to lose its passion. That's one reason why we have to have the doctrine of justification by faith in our bloodstream. Because there's enough continuing sin in my life to remind me that without the righteousness of Christ, I have no hope whatsoever. All right, there's more to be said on this business of the will. I've written a whole book on it, if you want to read it, called Willing to Believe, where I go back through history and look at Augustine's uh, explanation of it. I look at uh, at the Roman Catholic Church's view of it, I look at Luther's view of it, Calvin's view of it, Edward's view of it, so on, down through the ages. Edward's made another distinction that's important. But he said that fallen man has the natural ability to please God, but not the moral ability. And that distinction there is critical between natural ability and moral ability. Let me just take a minute to explain it. A natural ability is an ability that, with which you're endowed by nature. For example, a bird has the natural ability to fly unaided through the air because God, in creating the bird, gave the bird the natural equipment he needs to fly. It gives him wings a very light bone structure, feathers, so that he can ride the drafts of wind in the air. All that he needs to fly, God has given to him naturally, so that the bird has the natural ability to fly. The fish has the natural ability to live underwater because God gave him gills, God gave him scales, and so on. But you don't have the natural ability to fly. If you want to fly, you have to ride an airplane. Well, you can fly in one direction, (laughs) down. (laughs) Sometimes the landings are a little tough. We don't have the natural ability to fly. We don't have the natural ability to live underwater. We do have the natural ability to obey God in this sense, that we have the equipment, the faculties that are necessary to be obedient creatures. We have the, a mind that God gave us, and we have the will that God gave us. So He's given us the equipment that we need, naturally speaking, to be obedient to Him. What we had before the fall was the immoral ability to choose Him. After the fall, it's the moral ability that's lost. This is what Augustine was teaching to Pelagius, that we had, liber- we had a free will and we had liberty. After the fall, we still have free will, but we've lost the liberty because we've lost the desire to please God. That's why Jesus says in the sixth chapter of John, no man can come to me unless it's given to him by the Father. This is the great Arminian error. The Arminian thinks that fallen humanity still has the ability to incline themselves. Oh, they have an offer of grace, and if you say yes to the gospel, you're saved. If you say no, but nobody asks the question, well, why does one person say yes and another person says no? The obvious answer is because one's inclined to say yes, and the other one isn't inclined to 
to say yes. Then you have to go deeper and say, why would you ever be inclined to say yes to Christ? It's because God the Holy Spirit changed the disposition of your soul. Because in your fallen condition, you have no disposition towards Christ. That's what Jesus meant when he said, no man can come to me unless it's given to him by the Father. We're in jail without bail, bondage to sin. That's what Augustine understood. That's what Luther understood. That's what Calvin understood. That's what Edwards understood. That's what Spurgeon understood. Unless the Holy Ghost changes the disposition of our heart through regeneration, we would never be inclined to come to Jesus. If you've come to Christ, if you've exercised your will, and you have if you've embraced Christ, you made that reception of Jesus because you wanted to, because you were inclined to, because you were disposed to but not by nature. The only way you were ever inclined to Christ, the only way you were ever disposed to come to Him was because of supernature. Because God reached down and with His grace changed your desire. Changed your heart from a heart of stone to a heart that began to pulsate and beat with affection for Him and set you free. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand how we choose what we choose, why we choose what we choose. And help us so to be diligent in making use of those aids that you've given to us to strengthen the new man and starve the old man that we may have an ever-growing disposition and inclination to please you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.